It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. A Denver mother lost her son to an asthma attack, and when she couldn't find what she needed to help her other children cope, she took action. She went back to school and created her own degree, her message about recovery. Then, space planes taking off and landing in Colorado. It could happen sooner than we think. There are a lot of things that that even 10 years ago we thought about as being part of science fiction that companies are actively working on today. Plus, is the infamous brown cloud going green? And ready to go camping this summer? We'll check out what the campground of the future may look like. I think technology is continuing to advance right across everything we do. So we integrated a lot of different things into our parks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. After her nine-year-old son died of an asthma attack, Zatan Lucero Mills looked for resources to help her other children cope. Specifically, she was looking for books for kids ranging from toddlers to teenagers. She couldn't find what she was looking for, so she enrolled in Metropolitan State University of Denver and designed her own bachelor's degree, Literary Empowerment for Children. She graduated last month and joins me to talk about this journey that's taken 10 years. Hi, Zatan. Hi. After your son Zamonte died in 2009, you wanted to find books for your children to help them grieve. Where did you look and what did you find? Well, I started at the main Denver Public Library and I pulled all the grief books off of the shelf. And I sat down on the floor and read them all. And they were developmentally inappropriate. Um, They were much fantasy in that, you know, it would be magically fixed, their grief. Um, and I just was distraught. So I sat on the floor and cried, called over a librarian who wound up crying with me, um, as we realized that there really were not appropriate resources. And what kind of books do you wish had been available? Um, I wish there had been books that tell kids that their feelings are valid, that their feelings are normal, um, (laughs) that every other people have these feelings, um, and that they can communicate about them. First and foremost, they can communicate about it. And why did you turn to books to help your kids? What role does literature play in your family? Oh, my goodness. I have um, been an educator pretty much all my life. Um, In high school, I started working in schools, and so I learned quickly the power of books, Um, and that's kind of carried through my entire lifetime. Books are huge in my professional life. They're huge in my personal life. So I thought it would be a great tool. And what about for your kids? How do how does literature feature into your family life? Um, so again, books are huge. When we um, when we when we dare to punish, taking away a book can be the hugest, most awful punishment imaginable. Mm-hmm. And even before you went back to school, you were writing about your loss, although not for kids. You published Mommy's Reflections, Losing Zumonte and Finding the Mustard Seed. Tell me about how writing was a part of your grieving process. Um, Well, after Zumonte died, I started a webpage um, in his honor. And really shortly into that, I decided that I needed my own space so that I could kind of write through my thinking and emotions. Um, 
And that was ultimately what became Mommy's Reflections. And that was the book that you published? That was the book that I published, Thanksgiving Day, 2012. And you've been an educator for some time, like you said. You've worked in different capacities from preschool to elementary school. But you enrolled in MSU to finish your bachelor's degree. And you designed this degree, Literary Empowerment for Children. What does that mean? Um, So literature quite clearly speaks to the literary element that's specifically about books. Um, When you think of being empowered, you want to gain some strength through whatever experience and um, enable people to use their voice. That's what empowerment is about. Um, Children is pretty self-explanatory as well. I'm looking at the smallest people, the youngest people in our society. So literary empowerment for children means that I want to take books and use them in a kind, sympathetic manner, but also a manner that will give people empowerment, strength through their stories and um, their journey. And how do you see yourself using this degree you've put together? So I see myself um, in great measure as a facilitator, um, working with children, doing reading circles to start the conversation, which will free up some time and space and energy for the people whose um, specialty is teaching children how to write or teaching them math. Um, they'll be able to continue that work interrupt, uninterrupted as I deal with the social-emotional piece. And do you see yourself also as an author? Have you written a children's story while you're in the program? Yes, absolutely. Um, I have several books that are already written, though not yet published. Um, one of my main characters is called is Mimi, and Mimi is a very young child um, dealing with the death of her big sister, Um And, you know, dealing with her own thing. And the adults around her are pretty oblivious. Now, while you were a student, you had to overcome additional trauma. You were in a car wreck in 2017, and you were in the hospital for three months because the impact actually ruptured your heart. Right. Tell me about the recovery process and how you made it to graduation. Oh, the recovery process has been long and huge and um, is still continuing in, in some fashion. Um, I learned had to learn how to write again, how to walk, how to talk, um, basic activities of daily living. I had to relearn all of those things. But um, when I woke up, I was aware that I was missing class, and that was very distressing. I'm like, if I'm in the hospital, I'm not in class, and this is not acceptable to me. That's one of the first things on your mind. It, it was. Um, I, ha- I didn't see my husband for six weeks because we were in separate hospitals. And the first time I saw him, after we um, stopped crying, I looked at him and said, you need to enroll for school. That was on my mind. And in the end, you still completed your your college courses in four years. I absolutely did. Yep. I uh, was determined as soon as I was released from the hospital, I re-enrolled in school and finished my degree um, a year after I would have originally, I took off a year for during the accident time period. And we've talked about the ways you want to improve children's literature, but I want to know, what are your favorite kids' books? Um, one of my favorites is Even If I Did Something Awful, and it's about a small child who um, breaks one of mommy's favorite things as she is playing in the house with a ball, which she was told not to do. But it talks about how... Um, 
basically we have to clean up our messes, but we can find a way to do that and we still love each other. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. That's Zutan Lucero Mills, author of Mommy's Reflections, Losing Zumante and Finding the Mustard Seed. She recently graduated from Metropolitan State University of Denver with a degree in literary empowerment for children. The final frontier is calling, and Front Range Airport in Colorado is answering. It's licensed for commercial space flight. You can't book a ticket just yet because the planes haven't actually been built, but that's quickly changing. Colorado Air and Spaceport Director Dave Rupel estimates the first launch is as few as five years away. I spoke with him earlier this year about what it will take for Colorado to carve out its place beyond the atmosphere. Hi, Dave. Hi, Avery. What is it going to take for Colorado's spaceport to launch its first space plane? There's there's a couple of things. One, the technology has to get to the point that it'll work at our particular spaceport. And I think the other thing is that, uh, you know, the types of companies that will use that technology to get into at least to suborbital space uh, have to get to that point where they're comfortable with using that technology. So there are a few of those little leaps that you have to go through, but those are coming. I, I think you can look at companies like Virgin Galactic, who will be getting their commercial license for their Unity spacecraft this year, and they're a type of technology that could conceivably operate here. And in the meantime, Front Range is still functioning as a commuter airport for small planes. Are you expecting those flights to continue alongside flights to space? You bet. And I think that's uh, one of the unique pieces for facilities like ours. The advantage from the spaceport perspective is that you already have most of the infrastructure that you need to be able to operate. Space is really just a continuation of what we've been doing with aviation, especially for horizontal launch type space travel. You know, I also think that in the short run for a dual use facility, that really helps pay the bills. And it's worth mentioning that rockets are not going to be lifting off vertically in Colorado. Can you describe what a launch from the spaceport is going to look like? What you'll see is really not a lot different than what you see on a daily basis. The horizontal launch type spacecraft that we're talking about are space planes. They operate in the air similar to a business jet. They're about the size of a medium-sized business jet. So what you're going to see on the ground is maybe a little more activity around a particular flight because we'll have to, to do things a little bit differently from an operational standpoint. But really, it'll look like a business jet that's taxiing out out to the runway and taking off. They'll fly off to a special use airspace that's about 50 miles away. They'll conduct their space activities. When they come back into the atmosphere after they're completed, they'll descend back down to aviation altitudes and fly like an airplane back to the airport and land looking just like any other airplane, except that they'll have a rocket engine on the back. What about the noise? With the type of vehicle that we're looking at, they take off on jet engines which we already have aircraft taking off every day on jet engines. That part of it's really no different. Uh, Where we do have to be concerned about the noise a little more is in the special use airspace because they will be engaging the rocket engine. They will be breaking the sound barrier and uh, both when they go up and when they come down. But I think the key there is realizing that when they engage the rocket engine, they're actually at about 50,000 feet. So they're very high. And our evaluations indicated that what we would see on the ground from a noise perspective out there even was about what you'd hear from a thunderstorm. 
On top of figuring out these kinds of logistics, part of operating a spaceport is attracting companies to use it. Reaction Engines, a company that's developing engines that could go into future space planes, is already on site. PD Aerospace is a Japanese company. It's developing a space plane. It's also agreed to work at Colorado Spaceport. As you're looking to attract other companies, are you targeting a particular niche? Uh, you know, we're very interested in attracting this aerospace niche, the, the kind of the new space part of that. Some of them are companies that develop the technology for the vehicles. Uh, some of them are research organizations. Uh, there are others that are, are working on resource, space resource development and, and things like that. But if we can attract those companies, we feel like the ability to gain some out of each of those sectors then creates this uh, self-sufficient aerospace economy that can support itself and can also support these future launch service providers going forward. And I think you called it new space. What does that mean? You know, it's just one uh, reference to commercial space. And I think it's it's partly because there's so much new stuff that's going on in commercial space right now. And I think there are a lot of things that, that even 10 years ago we thought about as being part of science fiction that companies are actively working on today. Uh, you know, whether it's industrial uses for space, where they're looking at making things in space to use on Earth, uh, whether it's resource collection in space, there are uses in space that are, are now being pursued and developed that just a few years ago we'd have, we'd have never thought of. And then turning to space tourism. It is so fun to dream that the average citizen could become an astronaut. You mentioned Virgin Galactic, and there's some hope that they could be involved in Colorado in the future. They're planning to launch customers into space at the end of the year, but they've sold seats to the tune of about $250,000. What do you think it will take to bring that price down? You know, I think it's like anything else. The more it gets used as they develop those technologies and they have larger space planes, uh, things like that, you'll see you'll see that price come down. And, and I think actually that's part of the goal for those companies. When you look at space tourism, I think it's it's one of those things that seems a little crazy to most of us who don't have an extra $250,000 or something uh, in their pocket. But I think probably the most important thing is that, you know, they are transportation companies at heart. If your future goal is this point-to-point travel idea, you want to make sure you're doing that right. Are the seats right? Are they working well? Do the people are the people comfortable in that environment? So, do how do we incorporate those lessons we learn from space tourism into the next generation of vehicles, which are used for point-to-point travel and things like that? Do you think that there will be a time when point-to-point travel via space is more accessible? I do. I do. And I'm counting on it because I'm going to take one of those flights if I can. That's a really exciting opportunity. And I think when you look at, if you look at how long it takes you to fly around the world today, you can go to, if you've got a meeting in Tokyo, you can be there in, I think it's about 12 hours. For a business class seat, it'll cost you between seven and $10,000, something like that. But if you're one hour meeting in Tokyo, you're going to take three days for that meeting, a day to get out there, a day to get back and a day to recover and do your meeting in between. You know, flying space planes and going through suborbital space to get to those places. Now you're looking at something where you go down to the Colorado Air and Spaceport, you climb on your space plane, it's an hour and a half to Tokyo, you have your meeting and you're home in time for dinner. And I think the price point, they're already looking at that price point being uh, maybe a little more than what you're paying for a first-class ticket. But, uh, you know, if you're a business and you're looking at that, that maybe makes some sense if you can do it in a day instead of three days. Thank you for being here, Dave. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Dave Rupel directs the Colorado Air and Spaceport in Watkins, east of Denver, formerly Front Range Airport. When we come back, 
First the brown cloud, now the green cloud? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Denver's brown cloud is an albatross. The smoggy haze was especially bad in the 1970s and 80s, but it's still an issue despite cleanup efforts. Now a recent study asks if a green cloud from marijuana grows might play into this. William Visuete is a professor of environmental engineering at the University of North Carolina. He co-wrote the study conducted in Denver. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, happy to be here. You've been studying what effect growing marijuana could have on the air that we breathe. Could we actually have a green cloud that violates federal air quality standards like the brown cloud has in the past? So as it turns out, gases are being produced by these plants, uh, volatile organic compounds. And we're actually quite familiar with a lot of these gases because they have a particularly strong odor. Uh, For example, that Christmas tree smell or that pine smell is a volatile organic compound called alpha-pinene. Or one of my favorite smells, lavender, is a a volatile organic compound called linalool. Marijuana plants also produce gases or volatile organic compounds. And that was one of the first things that we found out. I should be really clear on this. So volatile organic compounds by themselves aren't harmful to you. Uh, lots of us breathe that in, and they're not very harmful. It's when those gases mix together with other gases, such as the nitrogen oxides being produced by car combustion, and in the sunlight, they actually react and form uh, some of those particles that we see, or ozone in the atmosphere. And so the question is, first off, do these plants produce these gases? And it seems to suggest the evidence that I have that they do. The next question is, is there enough of these plants to produce enough of these gases? And do enough of them go into the atmosphere to react with um, what's already present in Denver to contribute both to indoor and outdoor air quality? And that's the next step of that investigation that I'm trying to find out. And you're talking quite a bit about smells related to volatile organic compounds. Is that the notorious weed smell that we're talking about? That is a type of gas that is being produced by the um, plants, but it's one that does not participate as much in the formation of air pollution. So I do understand that odor is a significant problem, and it is a problem, and those are gases that are being produced by these plants. But I'm talking about a different kind of uh, classes of compounds. Uh, These are gases that we have known in our community that participate in the production of air pollution in the atmosphere. And I should also note that these gases could participate in those same reactions inside these facilities where the concentrations of these gases are probably much higher than what you would find in the ambient atmosphere. And surely there are other similar plants to cannabis that have been studied for their potential effects on air quality. Why study cannabis and not, say, tomatoes or tobacco? Well, as it turns out, we already have. For the past 20 or so years, our community has spent a considerable time and effort developing methods and building databases, trying to understand the amount of gases that come from tomato plants, from trees and pecans. And in fact, if you look at all the volatile organic compounds that are produced all over the planet, 90% of those gases come from plants. Only 10% of those come from people. So if we are able to understand in our air quality models, in our understanding of how air pollution forms, we really need to understand the contribution that plants have to the atmosphere. 
Now, all those methods and technologies, I then used and applied them to cannabis for the first time. And that's why we were able to estimate exactly what the amount and type of emissions that are coming from cannabis. Uh, so we've used these same methods and technologies, but they've never been able to be applied to cannabis because it's a, f- a federally illicit substance. How do you actually do it? How do you measure emissions coming off of cannabis plants? So what we actually do is we get a bag and we enclose the entire plant in a bag, a Teflon bag. We then purge the air in the bag such that the only air that's coming out of that bag is the air that's being produced by the plant. Uh, We then capture those gases and then we bring them back uh, with my colleagues at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, helped us right there in Boulder, Colorado. We then run them through instruments that allow us to understand their composition. And from that, we can then also estimate the amount that comes from these plants. And I want to get a sense of the relative impact marijuana could have on the air in Denver. I understand there's more research that you want to do, but could you estimate how significant it is compared to other industries, say oil and gas? That's an excellent question, and that's really a a real challenge. Um, You can imagine we could try and go and measure air pollution in Denver and try to tease out what the contribution is to the cannabis industry. But that'd be very difficult because of all the intermingling of sources that are occurring there in Denver. So the only other tool that we have that we could use to answer that particular question are air quality models, where I could build a computer model that does all the meteorological things that we see in Denver and has all the emissions from cars and the oil and gas and also the cannabis industry. I then run that computer model and then remove the cannabis industry from that computer model and rerun it again. And then I can see what the difference is between those two model predictions. So I'm beginning to do that right now. And what I'm running into is that there is just not a lot of information out there to allow me to accurately create what we call an inventory of emissions from the cannabis industry uh, for lots of reasons. And so what I'm trying to do at this point, I have, I'm working with the state of Colorado. They let me have their regulatory air quality model and I'm building the inventory now as we speak and I'm going to run those models and I'll be able to assess how significant of a public health issue this is. And depending on the results of your research, could you see this resulting in potential new regulation for the industry? So you could look to other uh, industries that also produce volatile compounds. Uh, Think of um, gas stations or any place that's uh, degreasing an engine, for example, or using solvents or or spraying things. All those things produce gases, right, man-made gases. And if you're that facility, you have to uh, uh, rely on a permit and you have to be able to capture those gases before they enter the atmosphere. So the control technologies that could be applied to capturing gases from the cannabis industry are pretty well known. They've just haven't been optimized for the cannabis industry. So if it turns out that these VOCs do contribute significantly to air pollution, then some of that technology that we use in other industries can be applied uh, to the cannabis industry. And has there been any response from people who do grow marijuana? Uh, they're very supportive. They're very interested. Um, you know, they didn't realize that this could be an issue. And, you know, that's what we're trying to um, educate folks, that this could be a possible issue that we need to look into. I've really had nice cooperation with the folks that I've interacted with. And what comes next? Tell me more about your follow-up research. Sure. So like I said, I'm trying to build that inventory now so I can produce that model prediction. Those results will let us do two things. One, it'll help us begin to understand what is the, the question, how, you know, how significant is this uh, industry compared to other industries in, in Denver. But it also lets us know what sort of information I really need uh, to get a more accurate estimate. 
The other thing I was on working, trying to work very closely with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and uh, they're very interested in this work, and I'm working with them to try to uh, get our hands around this problem and generate more data. William, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. This was a lot of fun. William Viswete speaking with me in March. Viswete is a professor of environmental engineering at the University of North Carolina. He's studying the effects of marijuana grows on Metro Denver's air quality. Imagine you're camping. It's time for s'mores. So you order firewood through an automated voice command system, and a drone delivers a bundle right to your campsite. You don't own any camping gear? Rent a site that comes fully equipped. Campgrounds of America is the largest system of privately owned campgrounds in the U.S. It envisions building what they call Campground of the Future by 2030. Toby O'Rourke is the organization's CEO. Hi, Toby. Hello. KOA owns campgrounds across the country, and there are 27 in Colorado. What does the Campground of the Future look like here? All sorts of things. You know, Right now, there's lots of places and ways to camp, right? And our our models take that definitely into account. There's a power pad site that you drive right onto and it powers your RV. We also did some elevated RV sites where you park below, but you have a deck above that gets you off the ground. You know, there's also tenting. And right now, there's lots of ways to tent. There's tent pods that exist that allow you to tent up in the trees. We think stuff like that will continue to be popular. But we also definitely played around with cabins and glamping, which is becoming more and more popular. We've got tree houses in our model. We've got glamping tents. We've got tents, for example, that are on a a track. And you could upload everything onto your, your platform, and then the rails will take you deep into the woods so you have a little bit more of a private experience. We also played with how do we take our different sites and connect you more to nature. So you'll see our cabins have opaque walls, for example, that allow you to see outside and experience nature, and then maybe those darken at night when you want more privacy. So the walls could be translucent in some way. Right, yeah. So more of that outside-in concept. We played with that on cabins. We also played with that on some of the main check-in registration buildings. Just any way we can blur that line between indoors and outdoors, we think provides a better connection to nature. And I'm intrigued by the use of technology in this campground of the future. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. I think technology is continuing to advance right across everything we do. So we integrated a lot of different things into our parks, you know, everything from almost Roomba-style lawnmowers, which are starting to be, you know, be sold in stores now, to... um, kiosks at every site that allow you to connect to the camp host to maybe order materials or order more firewood or extend your stay. We did play around with um, some delivery bots or delivery drones to bring that firewood and food right to you. I think the way technology becomes key to the campground experience, it's not to overtake the beauty of camping, but it's to provide some sort of utility or make something more convenient to somebody. So for example, We concepted out an idea that someone could drive into a campground and based off their RV they're in or their device that they're wearing, it automatically registers them as they pass, you know, it's geofenced, for example. They come into the campground, they don't have to stop and register and check in and find out where their site is. It automatically checks them in and then there's a lighted pathway to their site or there's some sort of bot or person even that would automatically then direct them to their site. So anyway, it can provide convenience and utility, I think would be a natural way to integrate technology into the campground of the future. So with robots and electronic kiosks, 
How do you respond to people who look at those plans and say, that is not real camping? What about the idea yeah. that camping is this the place where you unplug from technology? Yeah, no, I get we get that now. So like I said, there's lots of places to camp, right? So there's definitely backwoods camping. There's put on your backpack and hike into a mountain lake and put up a tent, which is beautiful. There is also what we call front country camping, which is like private campgrounds like KOA, which have recreation and have activities. They've got you know, like swimming pools, they have a a store where people can go get what they need. And a lot of people don't think that's camping. We have Wi-Fi on our parks now. We do know technology is very important to people. They like to keep connected while they camp, at least people that camp at private campgrounds. So I think if, I definitely think that argument happens now. I think it will continue to happen. There's always going to be different ways people camp, but that's, I think, the beauty of camping is you can still have that disconnected experience if you want it. There's lots of places to do that. And maybe the private campground experience looks a little different because that's what you want. So is your hope that these changes overall are going to allow people to get closer to nature? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, if we envision a world in 2030, people are going to be probably even more connected than they are now. And I think there's going to be this desire to connect to nature and to to connect to each other. People are going to crave that connection. And the campground is a perfect place to deliver upon that. You know, we want people up in the trees. We've got forest walks, for example. We want people camping on sides of mountains or experiencing the underwater even if they can. So I think that that's the whole goal of camping, and I don't think that will change as we go into the future. That is fascinating. Toby, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Thanks for having us. I appreciate it. Toby O'Rourke, CEO of Campgrounds of America, giving us a peek into the future of camping as we head into summer. We spoke in April. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.